Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Awesome. (laughs) All right, Zach, we're just going to start recording here, I guess, just in a second here. Zach, you ready to go? We're good. All right, so we've got uh, Dr. Anthony Chafee here up from the Pacific Northwest, if I'm not mistaken. You think you told me you're up in Seattle, if I'm – is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's right, and you are – uh, we got some interesting stuff to talk about. So tell us a little bit about your, your just kind of your background a little bit for the people that aren't f- familiar with who you are. I know you got some interesting stuff. You played some high level rugby. You're still playing rugby, and you know as you know, I had some experience with that sport, kind of similar to what you did. And then also you spent some time. I know you talked to me on the other day on the phone about uh, being overseas, doing some medical mission type stuff. So let's talk a little bit about your background, a little bit of that stuff, and then we'll get into some of the more other topics we might want to discuss. Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I, I grew up in, in uh, the Seattle area and started playing rugby uh, from an early age, got very much into it, and uh, was All-American in high school and things like that, and, and as the rugby was very amateur here in America, so only just starting to get into the realm of professionalism, um, people like myself that wanted to play at a higher level, like yourself, exactly, uh, went overseas, so I went over to England, played over there for a few years, and uh you know, at the time, I, I got interested in the medical schools in that area. I had friends that were in medical school there that also played rugby, and they, you know, talked me into that. So when it was time to go to medical school, I went over to the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, continued playing rugby and so forth. I recently got back to Seattle for some uh, family health issues, and now that things have kind of cleared up, I uh, was contacted by a charity called Direct Relief that helps with you know, different international problems. And they put me in contact with another charity called uh, the Hope for Bangladesh, which was a local charity hospital in Bangladesh that was helping with uh, maternity uh, care and OBGYN related uh, issues for the indigenous people of Bangladesh, a rural sort of area to help them out. Uh, there was a, a genocide going on in Myanmar last year, and where they, you know, un- I guess it's uh, the unofficial number are close to 200,000 people killed in, in pretty horrific ways. And about a million people fled into Bangladesh. Apparently it's been going on every kind of 10 to 15 years. The, the Rohingya will kind of grow up and say, hey, you know, we're getting treated pretty horribly here. They don't have citizen rights or anything like that. They can't involve themselves in commerce. They can't get educations. They can't get jobs. And when they get a critical mass of young men saying, hey, this isn't, uh, this isn't right, uh, they kind of get stomped down again, and so that's what happened last year. So I was contacted by them. They said we were in desperate need for doctors uh, to help in the camps, and as I was taking time off, in any case, I, I felt that I, I needed to go um, because it, you know they weren't really many people that were were going for extended periods of time or were able to go for extended periods of time like I was. Um, so I went over. I was there for it ended up being six weeks. I was working in the refugee camps 
uh, and themselves going in every day. Uh, it was an extremely dangerous situation. I don't know if you're familiar with Bangladesh, but they have a, a strong ISIS presence. And uh, it's a very orthodox Muslim community. Most people are very nice, but there's there's ISIS there. And as one of our interpreters said, um, you know, to be very careful because no matter where I go, doesn't matter where it is, there is someone from ISIS there, and not just someone who supports it, but someone who's you know willing to kill and die for them. So uh, we basically sequestered in at a, at a hotel they had us in, picked up in the mornings, dropped off at night, and told very. Uh, explicitly that uh, leaving the, ho- you know, the hotel on our own uh, was simply not safe. And um, so I was in the in the camps there just trying to provide general medical care, helping in any way I could. The, the charity that I was working with, like I said, did focus mainly on uh, OBGYN sort of care. The, they do, I think, more fistula repairs um, than any other institution in, South, in Southern Asia. And uh, so uh, they do quite a lot of good work, and they tried to open up that to the Rohingya population. But then, of course, they needed a lot of uh, general care as well. So I, I, I had a background in um, you know emergency care and different sorts of surgical fields before I got into my specialty. Because in Europe, you, you bounce around from to a lot from a lot of different specialties. So I had kind of a mixed bag of a background. So I was able to, to basically provide care that you would see in you know, any major uh, ER trauma center here, um, except that you know, you're in, in a third world country and you're, you're very limited uh, in your resources and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I had, like I said, when I was deployed in Afghanistan, you know, same thing, you know, we had, you know, we were in a military facility and so they had some, some decent stuff, but when the supplies ran out, you basically had nothing and so you had to, you know, it was an orthopedic situation. If you needed a screw that was 44 millimeters long, they they say, well, we got one that's 65 and one that's 20. Which one do you want? So, you know, and the metals weren't the right metals, and we were mixing and matching metals. So all these things that you're not normally supposed to do, you had to do. And then the same thing, I was over in uh, uh, Peru doing some mission work there, and it was the same situation. You know, the, the, the only nice thing I could say, well, I mean, other than the fact you got to help people, was there wasn't all the, the, the just ridiculous amount of paperwork and insurance and all the legal stuff that goes on here that that's such a so many physicians are just so tired of dealing with but uh um let me you know because uh obviously bangladesh is one of the poorest nations on earth you know it's it's just, it's just a i mean people just don't realize how how difficult this stuff is um what was the you know what was the volume like of people that were needing care i mean it's you know i think it's it's can be overwhelming i know when we went to peru i mean we wanted to see 150 people in our clinics and we got 500 people show up the first day and so uh, you just just kind of put it into perspective of how lacking the rest of the world is in in, in getting medical care. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that's a right on point. I mean, there's it was it was it was quite hard, you know, seeing how many people needed help and just realizing that you would never be able to help everyone. Uh, we worked with uh, partnered with uh, another NGO called uh, Med Global, and they they tried to help staff our um, uh, field clinics and things like that. So. The, the numbers they were they were seeing they, they would generally have about three to four doctors kind of doing you know the same thing that I was doing but more on a on a, on a primary care sort of basis and as they weren't they weren't uh, dealing with as many emergencies those were kind of shipped off to the they had a, a permanent charity hospital just outside of the camps and so like more serious cases would be sent out there and, and either I myself or someone else would see them but uh, they were you know they they would have doctors come in for a week at a time and you know. Three, four doctors, and and the 
things that they were posting was something like you know, they, they treated 500 patients each week, 700 patients that week. They were talking about five day period. Um, and so when I would go into the the camps as well, like you said, it was, it was just lined up down the, you know, out, out of the building. We have kind of mash tents sort of thing. Like, like literally, you see out of, out of the movie or the show Mash. And we'd be treating patients in there. There'd be absolutely cattle call of people and we'd have probably like you know, 15 people in the room you're treating one person at a time just because there's no patient privacy you can't get people out of there they're just packing and uh so i think um uh, some of the, some of the numbers like i would i would obviously try to see as many people as i could and we also had people that weren't even um doctors or even nurses they called them paramedics but really would it be like here it wouldn't be like a paramedic we would think about we more of like a, a paralegal, someone who, you know, kind of works and helps out in that field, but isn't actually a medical professional. So it'd be closer to an MA here. And, and they were like actually treating people because they had no one else. And so some of these MAs, I mean, all they could do really is, is they'd be kind of like a helpful person at a pharmacy where they basically like symptom control or, oh, you have a cough, here's this, you have a fever, here's that. Uh, they couldn't really do much else, which was very frightening to me because I'm, I'm seems a little, you know, this isn't necessarily just a, a, a benign cough or a benign fever. Um, but they were they were seeing regularly 70 to 90 patients each as the MA. So that was the overflow from the, the doctors and, and uh, nurse practitioners who were there. So um, yes, it was, it was, and, and, and at the same time, that was not even nearly as many people as needed help that day, you know? So it was extremely, difficult to see that and not and know that you couldn't help and then like you say you know the resources you have i mean this, this is kind of you know real medicine primal stuff that you, you see what's going on uh you know that you don't have the material and you, and you just have to figure it out so uh, that was you know it's exciting to kind of do that but it's also uh, uh it sucks honestly because it, you know, you're seeing people that you know you could help uh in a different circumstance and, and, and you simply can't um, yeah, we take it for. I remember in Afghanistan, we would sometimes be almost running out of saline, you know, and you're like, and you're, you're washing all these wounds, there's no saline left. And so you're just kind of like, what the heck, you know? So, but I mean, that's, that's pretty, you know, amazing stuff. And I certainly, you know, having sort of done the similar stuff, I, I appreciate what goes into that and not to underestimate the potential risk you put yourself at because we hear about, uh, People doing medical missions all the time that, that sometimes don't make it back. You know, they get they get captured and killed just like anyone else does. And so, uh, thank you for doing that. And I'm sure the people of Bangladesh certainly have, have benefited from from your time over there. Let's talk about um, something not so <laughs> morbid, I guess. Let's talk a little bit about rugby because you told me a story about you know you you were you were playing rugby earlier and you know I, I you know again I, I really. I think it's a great sport. I had fun playing with it when I was younger. I'm, you know, my fifties now. Even though I'd like to get out there some days and smash into people, it just, you know, you know, it's not uh, always that practical. Um, so tell me a little bit about that 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 experience. What teams in England did you play for, by the way? So I, I probably played for Newbury, which is right outside of Oxford. I tried out with Nottingham and was, was offered a slot there, but I ended up taking a position with uh, Newbury. It was, it was actually kind of on their on their sort of false pretenses because the coach from Newbury said that there's this guy, uh, Matt Sherman, who was the Eagles fly half who I played with at a, at a you know, Grizzlies level, you know, ITT, sort of regional select team. And uh, I said, oh yeah, you know, he, he's playing for us, you know, he's with us down here. I was like, oh, great. You know, definitely want to come down and, and, and play with Sherman. I get down there and like, I don't see him, don't see him. 
and I had a two-week tryout with them. It's like, oh, well, I think he's out of town, so you know, you'll see him, you'll see him. And after the two weeks, they offered me a spot there. And then I found out that, uh, no, he actually doesn't play for Newbury. He plays for Oxford. He's getting a uh, master's there. And we would do weightlifting sessions with them in the morning. I'm like, well, that's not really the same thing. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, you know, it, was, it was a very enjoyable experience. That, that coach actually ended up, um, um, Ben Ryan, he ended up coaching the G7 team when they won the Olympics. So that was the same same guy. And he was our 15s coach. And, and you know, it, it makes perfect sense that he changed into 7s because he actually had us playing 15s in a 7s fashion. He actually said that, um, you know, I always say, like, you know, no 50-50 passes. He's like, if it's 50, 50, it's on. Do it. I want the 50-50 passes. And he says, if you go into contact, you form a ruck. I consider that a failure. So like, <laughs> sounds like uh, sounds like the Fijian national team sort of strategy, kind of just throwing the ball every, all over the place. I'm sure some of the people won't won't understand that reference. But anyway, so um, so tell me, because, you know, you said, you know, one of the things that was interesting, obviously, was you said you had a sort of a unique dietary strategy years ago that, that sort of helped with performance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, when I was doing my undergraduate uh, degree uh, at the University of Washington, I took a class in cancer biology. And day one, we were talking about uh, all the different sorts of natural carcinogens that exist in plants, you know, like, you know, Animal can run away from you. It's got horns, it's got you know, defenses. It can fight back or run away. Plants can't. So they can grow, grow up or they can grow in a remote area or they can be poisonous. It's usually a combination of all three. Uh, but it's always you know, some sort of chemical deterrence. You know, that's why most plants on Earth are poisonous to most animals on Earth. There's just a select uh, few with an evolutionary niche that can, that can eat certain plants. You know? Uh, so we started learning about these things, and, and they had, uh, and you know, this was back in, in 2000, 2001, and he said that, uh, you know, there were, there were these natural carcinogens, and like Brussels sprouts, they had already identified 136 separate known carcinogenic agents in Brussels sprouts, over 100 in just normal white mushrooms. Spinach, kale, lettuce, broccoli, cabbage, celery, everything had dozens each, and, that, and this, was, this was, you know, 18 or so years ago, so I mean, who knows how many they found now. I, I looked into um, you know, Professor Ames, who's down, who was down in Berkeley, and, and saw that he was doing this sort of research back in, in the 80s, and he found that there were 10,000 times more pesticides and insecticides naturally occurring in, in vegetables than we crop dust on our plants. So, you know, the idea that it was like, well, you know, organic uh, vegetables are really good for you, it's just those pesky pesticides, and he, his point was like, no, actually, it's a drop in the bucket, and, uh, you know, and, and you know, one organic mushroom a day, if you ate it every day, compared to one apple with ALAR sprayed on it, he was, she showed in animal models that you were a thousand times more likely to get cancer from eating the mushroom than you were from the ALAR in an apple. Um, so that was back in 1986, and, you know, our professor's telling us all this stuff. And, and we were sitting, sitting there in stunned silence. It's the first day, and, uh, and we're all kind of thinking, but, but vegetables are good, right? I mean, you eat vegetables, and he kind of read the room. He looks at us and goes, I don't eat vegetables. <laughs> My kids don't eat salad. You know? Plants are trying to kill you. And so, you know, I took that to heart. I mean, I saw the evidence of it myself. You know, it's not one of these things where it's like, I heard about this good diet, so I tried it and it worked for me. Therefore, it's the answer. It's like, no, I was convinced of the science behind it before ever trying it. So early on, I was like, all right, well, I'll just avoid plants. And so what the hell do I eat? Everything's a plant. And so I just started eating eggs, meat, and milk. 
And uh, you know, first couple weeks, I had you know was just craving everything, pizza and all these sorts of things. But after two weeks, I just didn't even care. And I just did that for three years, and every every and I just felt absolutely incredible. Uh, every couple months, I would think, well, shoot, should I eat a banana or something? Do I need a vitamin? And I, I was like, well, I feel good, and my gums aren't bleeding, so I'm just going to keep keep rolling with this. And uh, I had associated that because at the same time, I also stopped drinking during the rugby season. So I was thinking, and obviously that makes a huge difference, but I associated that massive change uh, in my performance to not drinking. So I just stopped drinking cold turkey during uh, you know, rugby season. And But I also was doing this diet. So for about three years, I was doing both, and I felt absolutely fantastic. And then I broke my leg um, before the 2003 World Cup. I kind of, you know, shit, well, I'm not playing rugby, so I'm not going to be as strict on these sorts of things. Um, but subsequent years, you know, I made a recovery, all these sorts of things. And I, um, I never drank during the rugby season, but I, I kind of didn't realize that I kind of slipped off the diet as well. And I never played well. I played well. I played great. I felt great, but I never felt as great. I never felt as, as phenomenally in shape. I, I couldn't get tired. I was training for eight to 10 hours a day, dead sprint. I always had a rule that I was going to be the front of every sprint, the front of every drill, going to beat everybody, and and I just just accelerated exponentially, and then I, I wasn't able to really do it at that same level in subsequent years. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. And then uh, years later, you know, just just more recently, um, when I got back from Bangladesh, uh, my brother told me about your interview with Joe Rogan. He's like, oh, there's a doctor, he's a rugby player. And he, you know, was talking about how you get all your vitamins and everything like this from carnivore diet and all this sort of stuff. And I, I watched it. And I was like, it's got to bang on. And in fact, everything else kind of you know, slotted into place place for me. And, and all of a sudden, I realized, like, that was the difference. It wasn't that, that I just stopped drinking. It was that I stopped, that I stopped eating all the plants as well. So it was like, from that day on, it's like, done. It's dead to me. Yeah. So what what are you doing currently these days? I mean, I know I know you told me that you're back. I mean, because you said you're I think you said you're 38 years old and you're still out there playing playing rugby. So what's going on with your with your diet these days and how's that affecting you? And now that you have some sort of thought that that might be a beneficial way to go. Yeah. So so as soon as I saw that, I mean, my my entire diet after getting back from Bangladesh, you know, I always got a car follower, uh, Dr. Robert. UCSF, where he showed that fructose was a positive this huge sort of disease increase. Um, you know, it was blamed on fat and cholesterol. He actually, you know, showed biochemically what fructose does in vivo and the damaging it is. So I always never really touched sugar, didn't really touch carbs, but my diet was greens, uh, just spinach, kale, and broccoli, and then meat. And I was actually kind of limiting the amount of meat because trying to limit calories and slim down and things like that. And my, my weight was just fluctuating all over the place. It wasn't that all right. I didn't feel great. And, um, you know, and then I, and I, I saw your thing, and all of a sudden I was like, hey, yeah, this, this absolutely makes sense. Everything's slotted into place. So I just, all I did was cut out the, the raw greens, spinach, kale, and broccoli. Because everyone says they're the most healthy things ever, right? So I stopped eating those, and I increased my meat. I just ate until, you know, satiation. And I instantly was never hungry again. I felt fantastic. And I lost 17 pounds in a week and a half, eating more calories, right? And, you know, what, what I attribute this to is, you know, like, we have all these carcinogenic agents that we know exist in plants. Uh, well, how do they cause cancer? They cause inflammation, they cause oxidative stress, they cause, you know, uh, 
you know, reactive oxygen species, all these sorts of things that damage our, our, our tissue, they're also damaging our physiology and eventually precipitate a mutation that can then lead to cancer. However, it's doing damage all the time. And so getting rid of all these sorts of things, I got rid of all this inflammation, and I, I assume what I lost was, was water weight that was being latched onto with the inflammation. After that, I stayed the exact same weight and just started stacking on muscle and shredding fat. I've actually lost another uh, probably you know, 15 to 20 pounds since then. I, I gained a significant amount of muscle. After two weeks of this, I felt so good that I was just like, wow, going out to rugby. Like That's obviously what I'm doing. And uh, so I started playing again. And um, I was uh, one thing that I, I realized, too, is that it didn't matter how hard I worked out. I couldn't get sore like I normally would. And I, I felt like, like maybe I'm not working out hard enough because I should feel sore, like crippled with soreness and uh, pain. I really just wasn't. I tested it. I just tried to do you know, just set after set. So I did 20 sets of squats. And the next day, I felt fine. And sort of what I attribute this to is that you have, these again, these inflammatory factors that exist in plants. And that these are actually latching onto the, the areas of tissue that are, are healing and causing inflammation, which is causing the pain. And since I've eliminated that, I, I don't have the same level of soreness. I mean, I can kind of you know feel that I've worked out and things, but nothing like what I should have. I didn't work out for two and a half months. And then I did 20 sets of squats, and I, and I went hiking the next day and rugby practice that night. I mean, I should have been on my deathbed. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but it just felt absolutely fantastic. So I'm, I'm absolutely strict carnivore uh, at the moment. I, I sometimes have milk and stuff like that, but I've really cut out dairy as well. And I don't have a problem with it specifically. I just try to avoid uh, the sugars that are in it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's really just beef. You know, that's, that's mainly it. I absolutely feel fantastic. You know, I, I weigh the same as I do as I did back when I was, you know, 21, 22, you know, playing rugby in England. Yeah. So, Anthony, do you 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 focus mostly on like ruminants or like red meat type uh, meats to kind of build around? Do you kind of bring in other types, or is it pretty uh, pretty standard just to have mostly red meat during the day? Yeah, it, it's predominantly red meats. I mean, I, I'll eat. Fish, salmon, things like that, um, you know, shrimp, whatever. Um, but generally, yeah, you know, it's, it's, the vast majority of it is, is red meat, um, chicken, lamb, uh, whatever. But I, I just find that I feel better uh, with red meat, you know, on eggs and bacon and things like that. And, you know, feel full, but I don't have the same sort of energy and oomph that I, that I do with the red meat. So my, my go-to is, is ribeye steak, so I just get the big trial back packs at uh, you know any any sort of uh, you know, restaurant supply store or Costco or anything like that and ends up being uh, much more reasonable when you buy it in bulk and then just you know I, I noticed that I you know if I have a two pound ribeye and don't you know, trim any fat or anything like that I'm probably really not hungry for you know, 24 to 30 hours especially when I was you know losing a lot of uh, fat in my body habits uh, that's that's as much as I needed and I found that you know it, you know as I, as I think of it your body recognizes you know through leptin, released from your adipose tissue, that you have an abundance of energy, you don't actually eat as much as, as you know, because you're, you're burning some of your fat. Uh, so when I was still slimming down, two pounds was, was absolutely adequate. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I kind of hit hit the point where my weight's kind of stabilized, and um, and then all of a sudden my, my hunger increased, so I didn't eat three, four pounds or you know, uh, different amounts every day, and what I kind of attribute that to is I kind of lost as much body fat as my body wanted to, and now it's like, okay, now you need an increased level of energy to, to maintain what you're doing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always interesting. I think mm-hmm. one of the debates you see kind of coming a lot within just uh, you know fitness and physique and all that in general is just this the whole calories in, calories out argument. And you know some folks are adamant about how like there's all these hormones going on and things like that that you can disrupt with a poor diet and then other folks are saying hey it really doesn't matter you know as long as you hit that quota you're gonna get to the your your energy balance your energy is gonna um you know it's gonna be the calories in calories out kind of argument and you know i think it's always kind of uh you know a funny one that i feel like it shouldn't take that much like you know mental energy to back up and look at like well, who who really cares if it's energy, energy out uh, when it becomes a question of like, can you sustain that approach? So like if you put someone on a standard American diet and just hold them to a kind of, uh, you know, say we're going to make sure you're only eating 2000 calories a day of this, that's great if they can actually adhere to it. And I think when you look at, you know, the the programs that we've seen out there in terms of what people are supposed to eat based on like the food pyramid and the stuff that we've been seeing it's like obviously people aren't able to adhere to it. So then you have a situation like uh, um, in your case where like you had the extra fuel on board, but your body just wasn't getting the right signals in terms of accessing it and recognizing it as being there. Uh, you know, so that's always the kind of the way I look at it too. It's like, well, is it sustainable for you to kind of you know, manage it without too much effort? Because you shouldn't have to walk through the day feeling hungry all the time. You know, it's, <laughs> it's always kind of a funny one to me when someone says, well, just you know, use some willpower and it's not – it's not it's not a bad thing to be hungry every once in a while and it's like no but you should be able to eat then <laughs> yeah um I'll, let me interject in here guys um you know that's one thing you know because I, I see people that you know these guys that are you know in the bodybuilding world particularly that you know spend time very very lean i mean they get down around five percent six percent body fat you know these guys that are and gals that are that are doing these physique competitions and they say, well, it's just about cutting calories, weighing your food, doing your portions. And yes, there's some truth to that, certainly. My question to them is, why don't they remain at that level body fat year-round? And what they'll tell you is because we're miserable when we're there. So this is not a sustainable situation for most people. You can't sit there and continuously count calories, restrict your foods, and be hypocloric all the time. You know, people argue there's refeeds and stuff like that. But the bottom line is, you know, it is very difficult to do that for anybody in, in, in a long-term situation. Now, here's a couple things, uh, Anthony. One thing you said you were eating, you thought you were eating more calories, and, and the critics of that will say, well, how do you know you're eating more calories? Did you definitely calculate, or is it just goes based on feel? Um, and I do know, talking with other experts, you know, we had Stuart Phillips on the show a while ago, that when we, when we up our protein, it's almost like getting free calories just to, to some degree, so particularly with regard to fat gain. Protein is extremely difficult to turn into fat, as we learned, and you know we've seen it in, in, in a number of studies that have shown protein overfeeding studies, which Ted Naiman and others, Dr. Jose Antonio will point out, it doesn't lead to excessive weight gain. So, do you think some of that that extra caloric difference was uh, I just ate more protein, or or did you even actually eat more uh, calories? And then, and how do you know that? And then the other thing would be, you know, you mentioned about recovery being better. That is a recurrent theme, you know. Uh, you know, particularly on a carnivorous diet, but also we see that in low-carbohydrate diets. I know Zach was involved in a study looking at low-carb athletes versus high-carb athletes, and absolutely there were higher levels of oxidative stress uh, going on after an endurance race. So I think there's definitely something there. It's a common, common um, uh, refrain we're hearing from the people that are adopting, you know, either low-carb, particularly carnivorous diets, that my recovery is great. You know, I'm putting on muscle easier. My strength is good. My, my performance is well. But address the point of, how do you know you're eating more calories, and what do you think is going on 
um, if you are eating more calories and why you're not putting on body fat. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, no. So I didn't I didn't count calories, but what I did do is it was I was specifically eating less meat and I was eating a lot of vegetables, right? So the vegetables didn't have many calories. I cut those out, and I started eating massively, you know, a visibly more amount of meat and you know not trimming the fat. Can Can you give us a quantity? Can you quantify that? Were you you know just just give us an eye, a, a ballpark amount? Like how much more did you eat? Yeah, so I was I was basically eating you know kind of like a small portion, maybe like 150 grams or something like that of, of meat, and I was trimming the fat, and then I would have predominantly greens. Other than that, and I went from that to going to to more fattier cuts like ribeye and having you know, two pounds a day. So that was a significant increase uh, for me from what I was doing. Um, I, I think that but a lot of that weight uh, early on was was water weight. Um, that that's just getting that those inflammatory sort of reactions out of my system, and then I just started losing water weight. Um, because my, my weight would fluctuate just heavily, you know, 10, 15 pounds a day, just up and down. Every morning I checked, it was different offers up like 7 to 10 pounds. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Then when I cut that out, um, you know, I just steadily decreasing my weight, got down to, you know, it was 260 when I started, it was 243 when it came down, and then I just stayed 243. Every morning I checked, it's 243, and my entire body habits changed. And so I was, I was reducing fat. Fat. I was increasing muscle and just got getting better and better. Uh, as as to your point about the different calories, um, Dr. Lustig, who I, I earlier, he has a whole talk about how calorie is not a calorie because he's been up against the food industry recently oh, for the last you know since 2009 when all this stuff came out. You know because like you know Coca Cola different sorts of things will say well calories a calorie and if you have too many calories then it's bad and at this point no calorie is not a calorie. Fructose calories you get from fructose are extremely harmful. Fructose is what is fermented by yeast into alcohol, and your body re- and he shows this. You re- they your body recognizes fructose and ethanol, gram for gram, the same. So you get the same disease profile as you do uh, from being an alcoholic as you do from eating sugar. You get fatty liver disease. You know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Well, what the hell is this? You know, it's, it's fructose. It's coming from fructose. So you get fatty liver disease. You get cirrhosis. You get atherosclerosis. Uh, it causes uh, it you know, feeds cancer. It causes peripheral insulin resistance, which is type two diabetes. Uh, but it also causes you to overeat. And, and, and again, so what, what Zach was saying earlier, um, you get pathological hunger signals based on this, this hormone disruption when you're eating fructose specifically, but any carbohydrate. Because anytime you eat carbohydrates, your blood sugar is going to go up. And, and as I argue, I don't think the Fed state is actually our Fed state. We, just by virtue of the fact that we started studying biochemistry at a time when most people ate cereals, we said, oh, this is our normal Fed state and this is our fasting state. I would say that our fasting state is our primary state. Everything works better then. When you when you take in carbohydrates, your blood sugar goes up, and I, I think of it as a defense mechanism because you know glycosylation is is um, is what damages tissues in diabetes. So it causes direct damage, and your body's recognizing your blood sugar goes up. Your body goes, Jesus, what did this guy do? And it starts flooding in your insulin to slam this energy out of out of your uh, blood sugar. But what does insulin do? Insulin shoves uh, energy into cells. It doesn't allow it out of cells, so it blocks your fat mobilization from your fat stores. So when your blood sugar starts going down, you start feeling horrible and tired and you want to eat more because you can't mobilize. You may have a huge amount of uh, fat, but you can't access it because insulin is blocking it. But it also blocks leptin, which is the hormone that's, you know, stretch your in your stomach, tells you that you need to stop eating. 
but it's also what's released from uh, your adipose tissue, your fat tissue, to tell your brain how much energy you have. So you have an actual running gas gauge the whole time if it's not being blocked by insulin. Fructose also blocks leptin. It also upregulates ghrelin. So when you're eating carbohydrates, and, and especially when you're adding in fructose to that, you block your leptin, so your brain gets a signal you have zero energy stores, and your blood sugar is dropping because insulin is blocking fat mobilization. So you think you have zero energy stores and your blood sugar is dropping, so you get this panic signal that we call hunger. We think of it as hunger, but I, I don't think it's real hunger. I think it's a starvation state. And your brain says, if you don't eat right now, you will die. And so people who are obviously have enough energy in their system, they're, they're going, oh my God, I'm starving, I really need to eat. And you look at them going like, really not, but they really think they are. They're really getting this signal that if they don't eat, they will die because that's what you're doing. When you go on just a, a, a meat-based diet, you don't have these. You don't have the fructose. You don't have the insulin spikes. So you're, you're actually able to listen to your body. And so you, you know, if you're using more energy, your, your body will tell you, like, you should eat more. And generally, that's just meat tastes good. You know, or it sounds something sounds good, or you have low energy, or something like that. But I, I haven't since doing this. I haven't gotten, uh, oh my God, I need to eat sort of signal. This was actually what burned me um, when I first did this unwittingly uh, when when first playing rugby. Uh, was because I never felt hungry, and I had no idea why. And so all of a sudden, I'd be like, you know, a day or two, I'm like, did I eat today? I don't think so. I didn't eat yesterday either. Oh, shit, I should probably eat something. Because I wasn't getting the same sort of signals. I never felt hungry, what I associated with hunger. So, you know, now I'm cognizant of this. So I'm, I'm relearning, you know, my body's signals for, for hunger and so forth. You know, it's like, like you're saying, you know, no animal, you know, you know, is, is, is worried about overeating and things like that. You don't see fat giraffes, you know. They just, they, they listen to their body and they eat accordingly. Um, and, and as far as um, you know, our taste and things like that, like how is it possible that we evolved to hate the taste of the only things that are good for us? How many kids like Brussels sprouts? No one likes Brussels sprouts. You have to cook them up with oil and salt and things like that. You can't eat a raw Brussels sprout or a raw potato. It's disgusting. And you know that's because our, our brain is recognizing through taste that there are chemicals in here that are bad for us. It's like a Mr. Yuck sickness. Don't. Don't eat this. And so well, why would we have evolved? to, you know, like the things that are bad for us, like meat and fat, and hate the things that are good for us, which are like vegetables. You know, I mean, the whole, the whole reason that we think meat is bad is because, you know, USDA came out with a recommendation in 1980 saying that, that uh, you know, cholesterol and fat cause heart disease. And so meat, especially red meat, has high in saturated fat and cholesterol, therefore it's bad. And vegetables don't have fat and cholesterol, therefore they're good. That was the entire argument. Which is kind of a silly argument. We also know it was based on a false premise because, you know, JAMA uh, reported in 2015 that there was actually a conspiracy orchestrated by a sugar company, they, and they bought and paid uh, a couple, you know, two or three uh, Harvard professors who were very renowned in their field and paid them off to vilify fat and take the blame off sugar. They actually there's internal memos I think, that Dr. Lustig talks about this quite quite. Uh, uh, to a large detail, and actually came out with a book discussing it, um, that they actually, you know, knew that sugar was harmful, knew that it was addictive, you know, it gives you a dopamine signal, so it's actually as addictive as like things like cocaine and methamphetamines, it kills the same areas of your brain that, that methamphetamine and cocaine do, we have this on MRIs, you get someone amphetamine, you know, that, that hasn't been 
expose all this sort of stuff, you know, certain areas will light up. They give that same amphetamine hit to a, a meth addict, and it's just barely twinkled. They also give that same uh, amphetamine hit to uh, someone who's metabolically sick and eating a lot of sugar and all these sorts of things. They get the same twinkle as, as the drug addict. It kills the same areas of the brain. It's just quite scary. So you actually really do get addicted to this stuff. And uh, you know, it showed that, that these people really sold their children. $6,500, by the way. That's what it costs for them to, to sell out the health of the world, $6,500. And uh, one of these guys ended up being named the head of the USDA. He started making these recommendations. Uh, and, and you can see, you know, it, it was like Richard Feynman said, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how brilliant your idea is. If it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. And we did the experiment. He said, eat less fat, you'll be healthier. We reduced our fat intake by 30%. We increased vegetables and fruits by about the same. And heart disease skyrocketed, stroke skyrocketed. Obesity tripled, we went from 8% to 24%. You know, in about a decade, type 2 diabetes went up, it was, I mean, increased exponentially. It was, it was almost unheard of. Now there's 340 million people in the world with type 2 diabetes. 9% of Americans have type 2 diabetes. And that and their treatment accounts for 75% of the Medicare and Medicaid budget every year. And when you think of the fact that 40% of Americans are pre-diabetic, ostensibly you can have 50% of the population that be diabetic in years if nothing changes. You know, that that's I mean, you know, if 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 our, our healthcare situation isn't isn't kind of in dire straits at the moment, it'll be done then. Uh, you know, also diabetes or sorry, uh, dementia just real quick, dementia increases as well and, and, and what Lustig showed in the last couple of years was that fructose actually causes inflammatory response, which is why you get atherosclerosis causes inflammatory response and also Gives you gives way to SDLDL and VLDL, which are and triglycerides, which are real culprits in, uh, in in heart disease, and it also causes that inflammatory process that precipitates this whole thing. But it also causes inflammation in your brain, and has been associated with dementia. Uh, I thought I had is like okay, we're giving kids sugars and things like that, and uh, and we have at the same time we have this increase in autism since the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, if, this, if fructose is going to cause inflammation and damage to an adult brain, what's it doing to a developing brain? And not only that, you know, if we're, if we're removing healthy fats and long-chain fatty acids that, that are requisite in, in building a developing brain, you know, what is that doing? And so you'll see actually quite a lot of studies even done. I don't think anyone's asked that question. I haven't found a study on it per se, but uh, there's been a lot of studies that show that there's absolutely a dietary link. Uh, with autism, there's the uh, University of Texas at Austin, I believe, did a study finding that, that uh, people deficient in carnitine were getting a specific type of autism. Normally, we make carnitine, some people don't, but it, it's available with any meat product, any animal product. But, you know, people that are raising their kids uh, vegetarian or vegan, they're not getting this, or they're getting a specific type of autism. And you get bottle-fed versus breast-fed babies, increased rate of autism in, in the bottle fed. So you, you're depriving them certain nutrients and you're giving them fructose. There's all these things. I think it's a very interesting avenue for research. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, there's a couple, a lot of points you made there and I'll just kind of reflect on some of those. You know, um, the, the earlier, you know, you talked about the, uh, and Nina, well, I don't know if you talked about Nina Tychos. Nina Tychos came on the show and we talked about dietary guidelines and you know, according, I believe she used the enhanced data to show that the Americans were basically following the guidelines. We were eating more whole wheat. We were eating less red meat. Obviously, the food availability study showed red meat has dropped by about 30, 35% in the last 
40, 50 years, and the chicken's gone up to kind of take up the slack for that. So we've kind of replaced different sources of meat, but red meat has certainly gone down. Uh, Lustig points out, and he's done, you know, he, he, I'm pretty sure you're aware he's done some studies looking at children where they just replaced uh, uh, fructose calories isocalorically with other carbohydrate calories and noticed a significant resolution in fatty liver disease. It's interesting to talk about fructose when we talked about glycation because I've had some interest in this. And so fructose, as compared to glucose, is something like 20 times more potent at glyc- glycating or particularly forming advanced glycation end products, which are, are among the things that, that causes tissue damage, the nephropathy, the retinopathy, well, the vasculopathy, the retinopathy, and the uh, you know other things that we see in diabetes. So fructose is probably a more potent driver of that anyway. And yeah, as we know, fructose has entered our diet heavily since about the 70s with the advent of uh, high fructose corn syrup. And so that's very interesting. Now, back to regarding autism. Um, I have an autistic son, and you know it's something that profoundly affects me. Uh, and I certainly see this, and I, I've seen studies linking women that have uh, gestational diabetes or diabetes or probably perhaps pre-diabetes having something like a four- to five-fold increase in incidence of autism. And certainly, uh, you know, so I do think there's probably some dietary component overlaying that. I mean, the interesting thing about carnitine, we know that even though we can make that, that when we look at people whose diets are deficient in red meat, particularly uh, plant-based people like vegans and vegetarians, they have an overall lower amount of, you know, uh, systemic carnitine. So there's probably a uh, limited compassion. So if a woman is pregnant on a diet that is low in meat, you know, potentially that's putting her at risk. Obviously, this is conjecture and it needs to be studied, but there's certainly some things that are interesting to talk about. And uh, so I think those are, those are really, really interesting points. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outlier podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on ButcherBox as one of our sponsors uh, with ButcherBox, you can get some high-quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, with that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox? Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox you know, for quite a while now. I've run through several of their, their uh, different boxes and, you know, for me, and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been, uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the, the quality of the meat has been very good. Uh, for you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia, uh, and it has a very... Uh, I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain-fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass-finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the grass-finished uh, meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey, uh, and I don't find that to be the case uh, with, with the Butcher Box product, and probably because of the length of time the animal spent on grass and they get a little bit more marbling in there and I think that helps and so I've had a, a very good experience with them and I highly recommend them. All right folks head over to butcherbox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you and back to the show. Zach anything anything you got anything on this stuff? Yeah you know that that was all really cool stuff. Uh, um, the, the thing I find myself like I guess more or less a roadblock kind of when I'm discussing some of this stuff with folks who um, are like really having a hard time getting their head around this whole idea that, you know, vegetables may not affect you the way you think they will. Um, 
is like we're kind of we kind of come at it in a different way. Like I look at a piece of meat, and I'm looking at okay, where where's the value in that? And I'm looking at the saturated fat, the proteins, the cholesterol. And I'm like, these are all awesome things. I I need all that stuff. Uh, whereas you know you get a lot of people who will look at that and they'll see those three things that I find very valuable in that piece of red meat as like. Um, you know, something that's detrimental, something they should avoid, something they should be trying to cut out of their diet as best they can. Um, so it's, it's really interesting at that point because then it becomes like more like the, anyone sitting there watching that conversation has to ask themselves, well, who do I believe? Because this person's telling me that the three things this guy's looking for are the three worst things for me. And then we kind of get, and we talked about this a bit in a previous podcast too. It's like the waters have gotten so muddied in terms of kind of like, well, what is really good and what is not? And we're getting all these different answers and all these different kind of views upon it. And it becomes really hard for someone to really, you know, grab onto something who doesn't really have time to dig into some of these studies or, uh, you know, have a situation where, like yours, I mean, you have the, a professor who could have easily told you the exact opposite of what he told you and that maybe would have shifted the, your, your process completely and you never know. So it's uh, sometimes it's like, you almost you almost get like a coin flips opportunity to to make the right choice if you just run into the right person or the you know the right message at the at the perfect time. Yeah, well, I, I think that's that's so important because there you know, because we have to get down to first principles. You know, what are these things doing? You, you may not always know that, but you know, Dr. Lustig showed with fructose, this is what this molecule does, right? Mm-hmm. You know, with with vegetables and things like this contains these carcinogens. These are bad for you. You know, you you create more oxidative stress, you can't create more free radicals uh, than, than you would if you didn't eat them. Uh, also, people say, that well, there's this anti, antioxidant in vegetables, or there's this vitamin. But they, but they neglect to tell you, you know, there's, there's always look out for weasel words. You get down to first principles and you look for weasel words. Well, that, it has this one molecule that's good for you. Okay, well, what about all the other molecules in it? Are they all good for you or are they neutral? You know, if you wrap a if you wrap a multivitamin in a cigarette, it doesn't make it healthy for you. So you have one good thing, and it's, it's wrapped around this horrible, horrible you know rest of it. It's not good for you. You have to look at the whole thing. So you know, then you look at meat. Like, okay, well, what's wrong with meat? Well, there's a theoretical idea that if proteins get down to the to the you know your gut biome, certain bacteria can break down protein into a certain other sort of uh, molecule that can be associated with bowel cancer. It's like okay. You're making a lot of assumptions there. You're assuming that you have the, the requisite gut biome, and you're assuming that your your proteins are getting to that gut biome. And as I you know, mentioned to Dr. Baker earlier on the phone, um, you know, one of the work that some of the work that, that Lust, Dr. Lustig does is he shows that you know it's actually better if you you know if you're going to eat plants, you know, or fruit or something like that. It's better if you eat it with the fiber because it delays the absorption of, of fructose. And it gets and it, and it brings it down to the gut biome. The gut biome kind of eats some of the fructose. You end up absorbing much less. You know, I would take it further. You know, say, okay, if you're going to eat fruit or something, or if you're going to eat sugar, like eating with the fiber, yeah, that's better. But you know, it, because you're going to get you're absorbing less of it. But that's like having lead pipes and just adding a chelating agent to it. You know, it's like, well, you need a chelating agent because you got lead pipes. So you don't want as much lead getting in you. Know, it's like, well, why don't you just take out the damn pipes? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, so that's how I feel with that. But what also for, what fiber is going to do if you're going to eat meat with the fiber that's you know presumably going to delay absorption of the meat as well and bring it down to the gut biome and then it's going to be able to work on it if you didn't have the fiber in the first place it likely wouldn't have gotten there we have cases with you know stoma patients and things like that they 
they don't really uh, uh, you know, pass along much of that uh, uh, you know, meat and things like that that they eat, liquefies, it's absorbed. Um, and also you have to you have to realize that you're going to have a completely different gut biome if you're not eating plants. You may not even have the requisite uh, bacteria that's going to do that harm. So there's all these theoreticals, and they say in that, that you know, that uh, documentary, What the Health, which I was like just furious watching this thing. There were so many things that like people, you know, like, I mean, Lusty robustly showed that, that fructose causes diabetes and causes all these issues. And this guy had the audacity at the beginning saying it was never sugar, it was always fat. And Perpetuating the same lie that didn't meet with experiment back in the 1980s and really destroyed hundreds of millions of people's lives. And I think it's absolutely wrong, borderline malpractice for this person to be to be protected now. But you know, another thing they did, they said, well, you know, in, in artificial, you know, I'm sorry, in, in processed meats, um, you know, you have these additives that can they can be carcinogenic, therefore it's that. Okay, well, what's that word there? Additive. You've added it. It doesn't exist in meat. You've added it. Don't add it, right? And then they looked at, you know, they said, okay, well, in these additive uh, meats with additives, you know, it's a class one carcinogenic agent. And they try to conflate this and, and compare this to cigarettes and plutonium, right? But they but they know that they're they're dealing wrong because they actually show on the side there's a, there's a reference on how carcinogenic is it, what it means that you don't know how to come with, up with this number. It was, you know, processed meats, it was something like 118. And then cigarettes, you know, it was like 300-something thousand. And then plutonium was 8.6 million. So, no, it's not the same thing. You, know, you give your kids processed meats, it's not like giving them a plate full of cigarettes. 30,000 servings of processed meats can equal one cigarette. It's not the same thing. So you have to look for those weasel words. And then they say, oh, and, and normal meat is, is a class two. What's its number? Six? You know, when you can try and compare this to cigarettes plutonium, uh, and you know that you're being um, misleading. Um, also, then they say, well, if you, if you grill, you know, people grill chicken and things like that, and sometimes it can get burnt, and you eat that, and there's carcinogenic agents in that burnt material. Okay, don't burn it. <laughs> you know, it's like all these things that they're saying is wrong about meat are, are a theoretical, hypothetical situation that you, you'll get down to a certain gut biome and it'll do something. Or something that you added it or done to it. So you listen for what they didn't say. They didn't say, here's this molecule that is carcinogenic and exists in meat at all times. They don't say that. Right? But I can point out specific molecules in plants that cause oxidative stress, that cause free radical, that cause cancer. So you get down to those first principles. Say, this is what these do. And like, well, theoretically over here, it's like, yeah, all right. But this is what this does. Yeah, I mean that's again and, and again. Some people will be upset listening to this stuff, and and you know some of this is obviously speculative. You know, if we go out there and say plants cause cancer, it's going to upset a lot of people. And I, I think when we look at what the actual evidence on that is, I mean, I know Bruce Ames did that study back in 1990. You know, you referenced him earlier, and he looked at you know natural pesticides, either natural chemicals and fruits and vegetables that we eat every day, and they found in rats or, or other other animal studies that about. 27 of the 52 compounds they looked at showed that in high doses they would induce cancer in these animals. And so, again, that you, again, you still have to say we have to take a leap there to, to, to say that eating broccoli is going to give me cancer. I don't know if we can, we, we can quite say that. But your point remains that, you know, they do take that same information with regards to meat. And they say, well, look, we have a rat study. We have three rat studies out of 20. 20 didn't show anything, but three did. So now we're going to put the blame on meat based on this really weak, weak epidemiology. And we had Dr. 
Georgia Edon a while back, and she's she's excellent about going through this and sort of going through what the actual science is, and it's really alarmingly weak when you look at that, you know, for the amount of sort of scaremongering that's going on regarding meat. I mean, it's 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 just it, I don't think it warrants what's going on there, and so it's kind of almost complete insanity to me to some degree. Um, trying to think what else I wanted to touch on that you spoke about. Um, you know, the, the one thing that I find interesting, you know, and I've looked at this, you know, when we look at, when you talked about the patients with stomas, those are patients that, for those people that don't know that, the patients that have had part of their intestine removed. And so what happens is instead of going to the bathroom out your anus, you go out through a hole in the middle of your stomach. Often that's something like an ileostomy or a diverting colostomy. But when we look at ileostomy patients and they've done studies comparing animal protein versus plant protein, particularly soy protein, they've seen that when you're when you are digesting animal protein and you go through the small intestine it's very highly absorbed and when you compare that to soy protein the soy protein isn't as well absorbed and thus more of that plant protein gets into the colon than animal protein so if we're going to make the argument that eating protein is going to rot in your colon then you have to say well then eating soy does the same thing and i don't think people are willing to say that um so that's that's an interesting thing and the point you make about uh, and even if it does get down there and causes problems, the point you make about it is eating fiber because most people eat a mixed diet. And that's the whole thing about all this nutritional epidemiology. We're assuming a meat eater is someone who is eating a mixed diet with whatever in it. you know. And, and that's true. That's what most people do. But when we start looking at people that are only eating a carnivorous diet and we have to say, well, if I'm not taking in the fiber, you know, maybe all my protein is being absorbed in the small intestine and none of it's making it to the colon or very little of it's making it to the colon. And so, but if I'm eating the fiber, maybe that fiber is shuttling some of that protein distally, and then that becomes a problem. So again, there's so many things we don't know about this stuff. And again, it all becomes speculation. And so I just, I keep going back to this point that let's look at the results in actual human beings today and see what's going on with them. And, you know, again, if we want to look at risk for colon cancer, obesity, abdominal obesity, visceral obesity is much, much greater risk than you see, uh, you know, it's something like you know, 300, 400% increased risk relative to the, you know, the 18% relative increased risk by eating red and processed meat. If we want to look at things like hyperinsulinemia, same thing. We see numbers that are, you know, orders of magnitude higher than these puny little numbers that, that the World Health Organization uses to scare it off. So if you've got a big belly and you're hyper, hyper, hyperinsulinemic, you are much higher risk of developing colon cancer. And so the answer, the question becomes, well, what happens if you only eat meat? Guess what? Your insulin goes down a lot, and your belly goes down a lot. So then, where do we? Where, how do we balance these numbers? You know, so it's it's this. This stuff is, uh, you know, when we when we cherry pick and we isolate systems and we isolate single lab values or isolate single facts, it's a big disservice to to, to a lot of people. And I, I just try to get that message across. We have to consider things in the whole picture. Yeah, and, um, yeah. Like you're saying, yeah, when, you, when you change these sorts of things around, yeah, there's there's uh, um, I forget the guy's name in any case, there was, was still looking at neurological uh, diseases and disorders, and uh, they were showing that in, in the context of a ketogenic diet, but what a ketogenic diet does, by definition, gets you into the metabolic pathway that you would be in a, on a carnivore diet, right? It's the same metabolic pathway that all carnivores are on, you know, wolves, lions, dolphins, all these sorts of things, they just eat that, that is their metabolic pathway, and that's the metabolic pathway we go in when we eat like a carnivore, which I, again, I think is, is, is more evidence that we are carnivores. Um, and so you get in this ketogenic diet and 
it causes uh, ketone bodies, which are, which are very beneficial for a lot of different reasons. It also um, increases your uh, mitochondrial number and activity. And this has seemed to be uh, very beneficial in, you know, we've, we've known this for something like 80 years in intractable um, epilepsy, kids having seizures, and medication is just not working. You get them on a ketogenic diet, it actually stopped, in a lot of cases, can stop their seizures. And what was all more interesting was that after two years, they can be taken off diet and medication and also continue to stop having seizures. So it's, it's changed something fundamentally in their brain process energy very differently. Um, this has also been, been shown in Alzheimer's, dementia, um, and, uh, and autism as well. So And, and Parkinson's, also cancer, all these sorts of things. It's, it's a very, very robust study. Um, and then there's, there was another study um, talking about the fasting-like diet, right? Um, and, and again, this is animal models, so you know, take that for what it is. But what they found is that like a certain day, number of days of fasting, if you were to fast for, say, four days out of the month, you'd start seeing extreme benefits in your health, right? And so even in, in rat models, they were able to reverse type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And so in, in type 1 diabetes, they, they were able to actually regrow the beta islet cells in the pancreas and start producing their own insulin again. Um, so they found with as little as, as four days fasting a month, uh, you, you can actually see these, these massive reversals. And so, so well, you know, fasting is, is kind of uncomfortable. People don't like it. So get them on a fasting-like diet, which is just meat and fat. And um, so it's fasting-like. You can trick your body into thinking it's, it's starving. And I'm like, sorry, you're just not going to trick millions of years of evolution. At a certain point, you have to look at the fact that if this diet, meat and fat, is is giving you these massive benefits and putting you in a metabolic state that's supremely beneficial, you have to ask yourselves, like, okay, is this maybe our primary uh, diet that we evolved on and should be eating, and is this our primary and preferred metabolic state? I would say that it is. I'd say that we have quite a lot of evidence in that in that camp. If something new comes up, happy to look at it, it might change my mind dramatically. Like you said, you may my professor says something completely different, but... Um, you know, at, at the moment, everything that I can see says that that's what this is. This is our primary diet, and this is our primary metabolism. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's pretty interesting. Said. I mean, I think the, the 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 discussion about you know this is a different sort of metabolic situation, and I think you know we have to realize that with regard to how we assess people, because I know we have this sort of paradigm of what we consider a healthy person or I don't even know if they're healthy or not, but these are sort of normal sort of standard reference ranges, whether it be for labs or, or different different variables uh, that we put people in. And we say, you know, if you fall outside of these reference ranges, then, you know, maybe you're not so healthy. But then we but but that's assuming you're on this one particular metabolic path. And I think we're seeing and more people are coming to understand that, that if you're choosing a different path, say you're choosing a ketogenic path or a carnivore, carnivore path or some kind of low, low carb path and metabolism has changes requirements changes reference ranges may change and, and we don't know what those are yet and so i think that's one of the problems we have too many people that are trying to what i call fit a square peg into a round hole you know we're just you know we have a different population we're dealing with that would be like the mistake of saying you know we should examine all women the same as all men you know and we clearly know if we were to look at a hormone profile and say well they're, they're just human beings right no difference I mean, everyone would say, well, that's insane. You know, obviously women have more amount, more, you know, different hormone profiles than men do. But because, you know, we we, we can't accept that same dichotomy with, with different diet schemes, I think that's one of the problems we have. 
Anthony, tell us what's going on with you in, in the upcoming future. I know you, you're, you're taking some time off to help your family, uh, and, and, and my uh, con, my condolences for you for, for having to go through that stuff. But um, what what's the near future looking like for you? Uh, what, what are the plans? Uh, I know you're sort of still finishing up some stuff with, with training, and uh, uh, where are you going from here? Yeah, so I have my residency first it was, it was spent be a few months and then things kind of took legs and got worse and then so I just said okay you know I'm just going to see this see this through until it's done um I was ready to kind of return to residency uh for the end of last year I was looking back into in, into things but uh that's when the whole thing with Bangladesh came up and, and I was just like well I really can't you know say no to this you know so I I, I said I would go to do that I was there for um, I was supposed to be there for like you know, three months, but the logistics were that it only ended up being six weeks. Um, after that, they, you know, I, was, I was approached and asked me, I was like, hey, would you be, be in, interested or willing to run the field hospital they, they were building at the time? Uh, I, I said I would, uh, even though it was really the most difficult six weeks of my life working in those, those conditions. Very difficult, but there's so much need to get, obviously, you know, after. Uh, the field hospital didn't end up being completed. Um, before the you know rainy season, hurricane season hit, so I was originally going to go back for like you know, six or so months, but uh, that didn't end up happening. Um, so at this point, um, I, I'm just looking basically to to return back to residency, um, just taking care of stuff here, and, and as soon as that's done, you know, obviously there's huge ordeal with hiring cycles and things like that for residents. Um, so I'm dealing with those now, and, and you know potentially go down to. Uh, Australia to finish up. I have friends and colleagues that are practicing down there, and, and I've been thinking about for a while to go down there. Even before I left my program, I thought that would be a, a kind of great experience to, to work down there for a while. And since you know now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a free agent, I can either you know, join a residency program here or go abroad. If I go back to Australia, it's, it's kind of a beneficial in the sense that I can pick up where I left off. Whereas if I, if I join a residency program back here in the States, I would almost certainly have to rejoin as, as a first-year resident. So there's, there's pluses and minuses, but that's that's the end goal is to get back into a residency program here in the next uh, little while. Yeah, and what, um, you know, assuming you get you do that, um, I mean, I don't know what, what field you're, you're, you're contemplating, I know I saw some of the plastic surgery at one point, but again, obviously, talking about a carnivore diet and nutrition doesn't go particularly well with those fields, as I found out as an orthopedic surgeon. But you know, what do you have any sort of hopes for? You know, has this impacted your thought on how to practice medicine? I guess you should ask. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I plan to get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Australian doctor who just got trouble doing legalities for two years because he was recommending a low carbohydrate, you know, high fat, low carb diet, and was helping a lot of people with this. And he came in uh, in trouble with the Australian uh, Medical Board. Uh, but I think he beat that case. I think he was able to, to show that, that he's actually giving good advice to people. So I, I plan on being that guy. Uh, probably got a lot of uh, uh, headaches because of that. But I, you know, I'm I'm dead convinced of this. You know, like I said, if there's new evidence that, that, that comes to bear, then obviously I'll, I'll consider that. But from what I can see now, everything that I've seen shows, tells me that evolutionarily, biologically, biochemically, we are carnivorous as a species. And that you know, it's not just better to eat more meat, which it is, but 
plants are actively harmful to us and they, they cause quite a burden of disease. You know, we, we look at dogs and cats and these things are, we know they're carnivores, we call them carnivores, and then we give them, you know, plant-based diets with lamb mixing or something like that. They're getting the same disease as we are. They're getting obese, they're getting heart disease, they're getting different kinds of heart disease, but they're getting cancer and they're getting diabetes. You know, you, get, you talk, talk to any zookeeper and they'll tell you, you don't give animals anything outside of their natural diet that they would eat in the wild. And yet we're doing this to our pets and they're getting the same diseases we are. And then you have to kind of look at that and say, okay, well, we're getting these diseases. Animals that we give inappropriate diets are getting these same sorts of diseases. Like, you know, are we on the wrong diet? Um, I, I put my parents on this. I've, uh, well, I mean, they did it themselves, but they saw all the stuff I was doing and I kind of, you know, helped them along with it. But, you know, my mother is a type 2 diabetic for, for over 20 years. And we were steadily kind of getting worse. She tried diet and exercise, but it never really was helping. She was on three medications. She was on um, carnivore diet for two months. She came off two of her medications, reduced her insulin by uh, you know, two thirds. And now her, her HbA1c went from 8.9 down to 6.1 in two months. I don't even know what it's at now, but I mean, that, her doctor literally looked at her and said, what the hell did you do? Like, how did you do this? You know, so it was, it was quite a, a dramatic uh, uh, benefit. You know, my father has had a lot of health issues as well, and his memory was having uh, trouble. And uh, after a month or two on this, he started getting a little better, a little brighter. And then, he, but he was still cutting fat because he's like, oh, the Pritikin mindset of, of low fat is better. And um, and so I was just like, well, you know, the fat's good. You should eat the fat, all that sort of stuff. And so he, and he told me the, the neurological benefits of, of eating fat and things like that. And so. He started eating the fat. After one month, he he was almost near reversal in his memory loss and cognition. Um, you know, so that, that's, that's a massive benefit. So I'm I'm very convinced of this. Um, something new comes along, says, "Oh Jesus, I, I had it all wrong." I'm happy to admit that, but right now this is what it looks like to me, and so that's definitely what I'm going to be recommending to my patients. You know, since since 2009, when I saw Lustig's work, I was already recommending people not eat fructose, and I got. I got into trouble then as a, you know, as a second year resident, and, you know, telling patients like, "Hey, you should really cut back on the fructose. This is this is indicative in, in uh, causing uh, type two diabetes." And so you can't be telling people that you know, fructose doesn't cause diabetes. I'm like, oh, "Really? Okay. Have you seen this research? Have you seen that and the other?" So, um, and uh, but I, you know, I think it's it's important to get this out there. I mean, this has literally impacted hundreds of millions of people's lives, if not billions of people's lives. Just a simple don't eat fat sort of paradigm vegetables are better for you than you eat it. This has destroyed the health of the world. I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean, it really has. You know, I mean, there's, there's you know, Lustig goes into the details of this, you know, but we're talking trillions of dollars a year in healthcare related costs that go into the simple fact that people are eating more fructose. In it. But, you know, I take it one step further, and I know you do as well, that, that it's not just, I mean, you cut out fructose, you're going to be. You know, 75% of the way there. And this is why something like the Japanese diet, you know, that's, that's high in carbs and low in protein and fat, and Atkins diet, which is high in protein and fat, but low in carbohydrates, both seem to, to, to have a lot of benefit. Well, the commonality between those two is they both eliminate fructose. So you're, you're quite along if you just cut out fructose. But then, you know, you know we, we are one species. We have a common diet, whatever that is. You know, you argue that it's carnivore diet. I agree with you. I agree that this is a carnivore diet. Is our optimal diet? Whatever it is, we have one though. So it's, it's, you know, it behooves us to find out what the hell that is. 
And so, you know, you can, you can be on a Japanese diet, you can be on an Atkins diet, you can be on these sorts of things, and you'll be better than when you're on a standard American diet eating a bunch of processed foods and sugar. But you'll be even, you know, more better if you if you, uh, you know, get onto a primary diet, which you know, would argue is the, the carnivore diet. One, one thing that I point out to people, too, is that they're worried about fat, and I, I kind of point out to them, we actually have an inbuilt you know, limit on the amount of fat that we can absorb. You, you need bile to absorb fat. You say, well, fat's bad. Well, why do we have a whole organ system that's sole purpose is to absorb fat, right? So you make the exact amount of bile, you, your liver makes a constant amount of bile, stores in the gallbladder, and it makes the, the amount of, ostensibly, the amount of bile that it wants you to absorb in fat. Once you reach that limit, you don't have any more bile left over to absorb fat. It just goes right through. You cannot overeat on fat. You can't, right? There's you, you cannot absorb it, right? And so you pass it through. If you eat a lot more through, you can go very quick. There's a lot of people who had those Olean, uh, Lestra sort of uh, chips back in the day. Used to have they had like you know fast diarrhea and things like that. But you have this preset limit. You can't eat, you can't absorb more fat than your body wants. And and I think this this sort of when you look at it from this perspective, you start thinking of different sorts of diseases like gallstones. You know, gallstones form uh, in gallbladder, but you know, almost all these people, you know, have a commonality, right? So you have the four S: female, fertile, fat, forties, right? You see, it's more common in that in that cohort. Well, what's a common theme with them? Had a couple kids, have a little extra weight, and want to lose. And they've all been told that. Uh, eating vegetables on a low-fat diet is going to help them lose weight. And so what they do, they don't eat fat. And this bile stores in your gallbladder. And not only, you know, this is limited space, you know, if you're not eating fat, it's going to concentrate. And it gets more and more concentrated, more and more concentrated. And obviously that's how stones form. You're getting more concentrated and you have stasis. So eventually they, they hate the diet. They may lose some weight, but they hate it their life. And they start eating uh, something with fat in again. They go, oh hurts you know they go to the doctor and they say oh you gallstones because you eat too much fat you know what were you doing um and then now they're showing you even less fat well if you eat fat every day you will all you will keep expelling that bile it won't have a chance to coagulate it won't have a chance to form stones so it doesn't matter even if you're predisposed to forming stones if you're moving it out of the gallbladder every single day it doesn't matter it's not going to be there long enough to form a stone you know um Talking about like the, you know, the ethical issues and and uh, uh, environmental issues and things like that, I think there's a strong case to be made uh, for this. this guy, um, Alan Savory, who's an ecologist uh, from I believe South Africa, but I'm not not quite sure. In any case, he did he did uh, uh, quite a lot of work in this for for decades and decades. And he actually had a TED talk out um, 2013 where he talked about the only thing that can save the world, save the environment from desertification, things like that, is having massive herds of animals and moving them along like you would see in nature, just constantly moving and migrating, but massive, massive uh, herds. And he shows that you can actually turn like an actual desert where he said, you know, will give you 10 pounds if you can find one blade of grass in this whole like five mile area. Um, and he started pushing herds through there and things like that. And all of a sudden, you know, after I don't know how much time, but it turned into this verdant sort of hillscape and things like that. So, uh, and there's other words. You know, Judith Schwartz came out. She was a journalist, and she wrote a book on this exact thing, saying that you know, agriculture, um, 
you know, crops and things like that actually produce more CO2 than all the combustion of, uh, of fossil fuels around the world. So that's something you're worried about. You've got to look at, at the agricultural community and also that these massive herds actually save the environment. They don't hurt it. Um, and then, you know, people say that, well, ethically, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to hurt animals and I don't want to hurt animals. But, it, you know, and, and it, it behooves us as, as people who do eat meat to, to ethically treat animals and to treat them kindly and things like that and, and to give them a, a clean sort of way out. There's no nice way to kill anything. But, you know, with that camera or shock, I mean, that's kind of the best way to go that we've found so far. But they say, it's like, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't hurt an animal. You shouldn't kill it just for meat. It's like, okay, so do we get rid of all carnivores? get rid of all um, pumas, all lions, all dolphins, you know, all the whales, we get rid of these things. Well, no, I mean, that's just part of the part of the natural food chain. It's like, right, we're part of the natural food chain. We're not outside of that. We're animals, you know, and, and you know, when you talk about ethics, you know, you go back to the Aristotelian sort of classical definition is it's to act within one's nature. And, you know, he said that the nature of man is to reason, and you can reason that the nature of a carnivore is to eat meat. And if we're carnivores, and that's our healthy food option, then that's what we should be doing. And you say, well, you know, it's still not nice to kill these animals. It's like, great, okay, but at what cost, right? Because we're giving our, if we don't give our kids their their most beneficial nutrition, we're hurting our kids. We're not give it, giving the elderly their most beneficial nutrition. We're hurting the elderly. We have massive increases in dementia. We, have, you know, we don't have long-chain fatty acids. You can't rebuild your brain as it breaks down uh, throughout your life. Okay, so we're actually hurting people. Some people in their you know, young to middle age aren't really seeing the effects as much, but it really hurt. It, it's hurting, you know, us even then. But it's also really damaging our kids. It's damaging our elderly. So is it, you know, at what, at what cost are we avoiding meat? You know, it hurts the environment, and it also hurts us. So I, I think it's a very strong case uh, for the ethical uh, consumption of meat. Yeah, yeah I, I know. Go ahead, Jack. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think you mentioned Alan Savory, and you know he's got some really cool stuff from I think both the micro and the macro concept of like where we would need to be as a as a as a culture in order to kind of you know help with this whole sustainability question, and it's where I often refer people to when they have that question about you know someone told them that cows are you know creating like more pollutants and stuff like that or CO two emissions and things like that. It's like well. It doesn't have to. It's really part of the structure that we have currently set up, perhaps. But if you look over at his stuff at the Savory Institute, I think you can kind of see how that stuff all works together. And it's it's pretty mind mind opening if you take the time to look through some of it. Yeah, there was. A, I, I just actually I did a radio program today with a guy named Trent Lewis who does is involved. His audience is is a bunch of the people that are in the agriculture industry. And anyway. One of the things he pointed out is, you know, the FAO, the, the, the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, released a report a few years back. And, and this is where we get all this, you know, some of the data that was being propagated as saying that, you know, cows are the worst thing for the planet uh, based on emissions. Well, it turns out that the author of that study the next day sort of released a retraction and said, I forgot to, 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 to calculate the numbers correctly. And so what he was doing was using the entire life cycle of animal agriculture to include start to finish in the calculation, but he was only using a fraction of the transportation cycle and the industry cycle. So he was, he was, he was using inaccurate data to make those claims. And so when it turns out when you actually calculate it, it's a much smaller fraction. And so that has been retracted, but, but you still still see people who are quoting this, you know, cows are the most damaging thing on the planet. 
blah 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 blah, and it's it's based on faulty data that's been that's been retracted, um, and so we have to sit there and and and, and you know get back there and sort of undo the the damage in the, in the in the to the mindset. We've got some guests coming on, you know, in, in the upcoming uh, weeks that'll I think hopefully talk to some of this stuff. Uh, so that, that's interesting. But anyway, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Anthony, having you on, um, is there a place people can find you and hear from what you hear, find out, keep track of what you're up to? Um, yeah, I, I don't really keep a, a Twitter account. I mean, I have one that I, I generally use it. Um, I don't even know what it is. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, you know, I'm on Facebook. I, I've never really kind of gotten into the whole social media thing. You know, I'm, I'm on Facebook and things like that. Sometimes I'll post things, but I, I generally just kind of keep to myself. Um, yeah, so at the moment, uh, no, but, <laughs> but I'll probably set up a, you know, Twitter thing or something like that. Cause I, I think it's important to kind of get this stuff out there. So I think it's like, you know, at Anthony Chafee or something like that, but I'll, you know, I literally don't use it, but I'll, I'll start. Using it anyway. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been interesting. It's, it's interesting to see, you know, not just the, the general population sort of, to become more open to this to seeing other physicians sort of at least be open enough to, to to consider this stuff i see more and more physicians every day that are that are that are sort of leaning more towards you know certainly the folks that are already in the low carb community community are already kind of halfway there but there's a number of physicians that are now kind of on board with carnivory at least as an option you know some of them are doing it personally some of them are recommending it for their patients and i think uh it's you know i think it should be a it should be a uh a viable tool for anyone to use and i think it's certainly there are people that are you know we we all know there are examples of people that have literally gotten rid of lifelong chronic diseases by doing it and so hopefully more people will be able to discover that option anyway thanks again uh dr chafee yeah thank you so much for coming on thank you both thank you both for having me Hey everyone, sean and i are excited to announce that human performance outliers podcast has partnered with thrive market Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high-quality grocery shopping easy. By going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping, you not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low-income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee and savings, Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Hey folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at ZBitter, that's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R, and you can find Sean at SBakerMD, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at ZachBitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R, and for Sean, it's at SeanBaker1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast.